We are Harvard Ventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. I'm Alex, and today we are speaking with Mr. Dan Moore, President and CEO of the Rockefeller Group. Before stepping into his current role as CEO in 2018, Mr. Moore focused largely on expanding the firm's presence throughout the country, specifically in the Mid-Atlantic region and the Rocky Mountains. Since then, he has helped strengthen the real estate titan's core portfolio in New York City. Prior to joining Rockefeller, Mr. Moore spent 16 years with Heinz, specializing in development and investment out of the primary DC office. As managing director, he helped shape the industry as it is today, making the decisions that developed the landscape of real estate, literally. After graduating from Notre Dame, Dan served as a captain in the US Air Force before earning his MBA from Wharton. Thank you for your service, sir. And now let's get to the bottom line. We just wanted to ask, you know, what was your path to discovering that real estate would be a large part of your future and how did it, you know, draw you in? Sure. And it's a, it's a good question because real estate's a funny career field because it's not in real estate development, which has been a huge part of my own personal career, isn't one of those things that I think is generally very accessible as you're growing up. It's not something that you necessarily know a lot of people and Certainly in popular culture, the real estate developer is very often the bad guy in the movie. If you think about, you know, whether it was, you know, Pixar's Up, you know, or the Goonies or Poltergeist, or even go back to It's a Wonderful Life, the real estate developer is typically, you know, not necessarily painted in a very positive light. Um, so as I grew up, I always liked buildings, um, always liked, you know, sort of building toys like Legos and those kind of things. And so as I was getting ready to start my undergraduate degree, I really thought I wanted to be an architect. And I went to uh, University of Notre Dame for undergrad. And I started off in the architecture school. It became pretty apparent uh, pretty quickly within the first few weeks that that maybe wasn't the best fit for my skill set. And thanks to some great folks within the architecture school on the professor side, some great folks within the sort of career counseling group, I pivoted over to civil engineering and very specifically structural engineering. So in that same realm of the built environment, but much more technical and a much, much better fit for me and sort of the way I'm wired and, and my innate skills. Graduated uh, with my degree in civil engineering and then I actually went into the military for four years. I was an ROTC student at Notre Dame and went into the Air Force for four years and got to do some amazing things, went all over the world, was over in the Middle East a couple of times um, and got to do uh, really interesting work uh, and had a lot of leadership opportunities that I think are somewhat unique for folks um, at that age, sort of 22 to 26. But as I got to the end of my commitment, uh, I thought I might want to do something else. And I really wanted to go back and go to graduate school. And originally, I thought about going back and getting a construction management degree because I really love buildings. Obviously, I had an engineering degree and I wanted to be in that development, building buildings, making great structures, informing city skylines. But in the advice of a friend's dad who owned his own engineering firm, he suggested that I think a little more broadly and consider going and getting an MBA. Uh, and it's one of those moments in your life where you get a really good piece of advice. And if you're lucky enough to take it um, and smart enough to take it, it could really impact your life. And it certainly did for me. I, uh, I decided to go get the MBA. I went to school full time for two years, um, went to Wharton. And it was during my time at Wharton that I started to learn about the depth and the breadth of the real estate industry and really got exposed to real estate development as a potential career. I was that classic kind of career switcher coming out of the military, thinking about what I wanted to do. And it was through that graduate experience and the exposure to you know, this amazing group of students, similar to what you guys have and the experience you're having at Harvard, um, the professors and the companies that would come and the different activities that you could be involved in, 
that I realized that I had really had an affinity for what real estate development was. And uh, as companies came to present themselves, one company in particular, the company I actually went to work for, which is a company called Heinz based out of Houston, Texas. Uh, they came one day and gave a presentation. And I remember distinctly, I went home that night, talked to uh, my then fiance, now my wife, and basically said, if, if I could have written down exactly what I wanted to do, it would have been what those people said tonight. It was that sort of that powerful of, a, of an experience. Was fortunate enough to get hired by Heinz into real estate development, came to New York um, and got to work on uh, a million square foot, brand new class A office development in the middle of Midtown Manhattan as my first job. It was pretty cool. It was about as good as it could get for a brand new MBA. Um, and so that experience, I worked at Heinz for about 16 years and got a chance to do a whole lot of different things from development to investment management to global capital markets. And it's just been a fantastic career and one I never could have planned that um, ultimately landed me where I am today as the CEO and president of Rockefeller Group uh, in Manhattan. Wow, that's really great to hear about. Moving into your personal philosophy, what do you see in real estate that gives it the power to change lives? So I think real estate is really uniquely positioned to be one of those powerful forces to uh, the way we talk about it at Rockefeller Group is we call it enhancing human well-being. We actually, that's part of our, our mission and vision statement. Our vision statement at our company is we want to enhance human well-being through our passion for real estate and the built environment. Because we, through our work, we either run on a day-to-day -day basis or build and create the places where life is lived. And if that's the apartment or the condominium you live in, that's the place where you're going to grow and maybe find the person you're going to marry and have a family and have these dreams and you're going to laugh and you're going to cry and your whole life is going to be informed by this community where you live. And we get to help inform that. We can make that a really great experience through the projects that we create um, and create these communities and places where, where people can have that, that best life. I think similarly in the office space, you know, you spend a lot of time at work and if you're working in an office, it can be really great or it can be really miserable. And through our work in the office space, you know, we can create places where businesses can grow, ideas can flourish, people can do their best work and have incredibly satisfying professional lives through the work that we do. And when you're lucky enough, like we are at Rockefeller Group, to work at times at a very large scale, a sort of city-defining skyscraper-like scale, you can have an impact on the life of the city, both the street life of the city with what you create at the ground plane and what we like to call the human scale, but also in how you inform the scale of the city and what people see when they look at that skyline. It's incredibly powerful across a whole realm of, of dimensions of both sort of individual human beings and what their life is like to the overall life of the city that gets informed by real estate. I think it's one of the best ways you can spend your time, frankly, and it can be a heck of a lot of fun too. Well, it's great to hear more about your personal journey into the real estate industry. You know, my mom is actually a commercial real estate broker. My grandfather was a developer in Dallas, so close to close to Houston. But I wanted to ask you, you know, the, the Rockefeller Group certainly has an investment approach and research style. But what is your personal process for assessing a property and how do you approach a potential investment? Sure. I always like to try to boil down the question of any investment opportunity as to what's the bet, the very simple question. And sometimes we like to confuse the details of an investment opportunity with perhaps what the fundamental bet is. Because really, while we're in the real estate business and in the real estate development business, real estate is really just an avenue to access a larger macroeconomic or demographic phenomenon. And that's really the bet. And so, for example, 
years ago, I was pitching an opportunity to build an apartment building in Philadelphia. And if someone says, what's the bet? Well, sometimes you would, that sort of surface level answer is, well, the bet is that rents are gonna go up and costs are gonna go down and returns will be this and we can lever it up for this and the cap rate will be this when we exit. That's kind of the aspects of the bet, but that's not the bet. The bet was an evolution of the city. And what we had done and through some of our research, the demographic trends of what was happening in the city included a growth in population, but it wasn't just a growth in population, it was a growth in a very specific sector of the population, notably younger professionals who were making at the higher end of the income stream. And so for the question in that example, what's the bet? Well, the bet was this market is getting bigger, younger, smarter, and richer, and they're gonna demand class A multifamily for rent product. And so we always wanna understand fundamentally what the bet is. The other piece of any investment that we look at is, we always wanna know at what point do we risk the loss of capital or the loss of principal and how bad does it have to get? And so we always like to sort of have way more upside opportunity than downside. We are in the risk business, so we wanna be intelligent risk takers, which is another phrase that we use a lot at our shop. But we always wanna know what things can go right versus what things can go wrong and how bad does it get before we start to lose money? And so one of the things that we do is, um, rather than running individual sensitivities on individual metrics, like, well, if rent is low or if construction costs go up or if the project is delayed, you do what we call kind of the, the doomsday scenario where all those things go bad. Because frankly, in a real investment scenario or in the real world, it's not just one thing goes bad, everything starts to go bad. And so we wanna understand that and understanding how bad does it get before we lose, when we lose capital. Because fundamentally, you're gonna make good investments. You're gonna make investments that perform less well if you can consistently not lose money for you and your partners, you're going to stay in business a long time. I love what you said there, Dan, about developmental real estate and making a bet on the city itself. I have some experience with that in my own life, but it's really neat to watch certain areas of the city evolve with you know new developments going up and how the culture changes too. There's a small spot in Dallas that uh, called Deep Ellum that used to be the most impoverished location in the country. And now it's a thriving arts district just because a couple guys like you went in there and said, you know what, this could be something special. Uh, so definitely seeing that that passion in your life is, is fascinating to me and as well as I'm sure the rest of our listeners. Um, but as we move through college and, you know, pursue our own, uh, our own interests and eventually buy homes and houses, apartments, et cetera, um, do you have any advice on how we can start investing in real estate, buying and running our first homes, or even looking into developmental properties? There's a little bit to unpack there. One thing I would say is you're going to school with a ton of really smart people. And you're going to find that a bunch of them are going to have really good investment ideas, whether it's real estate or something else after you graduate. I would say just be very mindful of going into business with friends because I've seen a lot of relationships get fractured and even damaged post-school when things don't go as planned. So um, there will be those opportunities. A lot of them sometimes come up in real estate, but just be very mindful of that as just a caveat. On the house or apartment thing, I would also say be careful of thinking about your personal residence first and foremost as an investment, because it's unlike any other asset you've got because of the frictional costs involved with trading in and out of it, because you've got to live somewhere, right? And your house is doing a lot more than just being a store of economic value for you. It's having to solve a whole lot of other problems as far as, you know, how much house do you need? Do you want open space? What about school systems if you've got school-age kids or want to have school-age kids? So I would be very wary of counseling anybody to think about home purchases or apartment purchases or 
primary residence purposes in an investment context because there's so many more important things you need to solve for. Um, on the sort of personal investing in real estate, I get calls a lot from, again, people I know, friends from school. And my answer to them because of my work is, hey, I'm really already over allocated to real estate. I don't need any more. If that's not the case for, for you, I think you just gotta be really mindful that real estate is highly illiquid. The timeframes can be long and it can be, you know, pro formas are great, but there's inevitably gonna be some friction and some changes along the way. And so certainly don't put anything into a real estate investment on a personal side that you think you might need in the short term. Uh, make sure you understand the thesis, make sure you understand the timing, make sure you understand the fundamental principles. Going back to the earlier question, make sure you understand what the bet is and that you agree with that bet. And be in, be in business with, you know, handshake people, as we like to call it, high integrity, really smart folks that you want to do multiple deals with. Oh, that's really amazing to hear about. Um, next, you've also in, hinted that at a unique leadership style that has given you purpose and success. Can you speak a little more about um, to how you developed this style and how it shaped your career? Thanks for, thanks for that question. This is something that I do, um, I do like to speak about sometimes. Uh, a lot of my leadership style is certainly informed by my time in the military. And very specifically, there's a concept in the military, and it's not just the Air Force. I think this transcends all, all branches of the military that you sometimes hear described as officers eat last. Um, outside of the military, you might hear this concept um, described as servant leadership, which is basically the role of the leader being defined as you are there to serve the people that you lead. And you are there to make sure they have the things that they need, the resources they need, the direction they need, all the tools that they need to accomplish the mission that you've given them. You're not there to benefit yourself. And so we say officers eat last. What that means is you make sure everybody on your squad from the most junior airmen to the most senior NCO, they are taken care of. They've got their food, they've got their resources, they've got their place to bed down at night before you even start to worry about where you're gonna eat or where you're gonna bed down that night. Um, in the civilian context at Rockefeller Group in the current role I'm in, it means making sure people have the things they need, which is a clear understanding of the mission and vision of the organization, a clear understanding of our goals, um, the support from the senior leadership and the central resources to get the job done, um, not putting in a bunch of obstacles, uh, to prevent them and making sure that they've got all the tools they need to do the important mission that we've given them, which is to grow our business nationally. Second piece of what I try to bring to the organization and what our organization aspires to be is one of what I, we call radical integrity. And that means sort of being a person of your word. And this is you know sort of a personal thing as well, but in an organization where you work under the concept of a radical integrity, you never have to check up on anybody. If I'm talking to you, Shaq, and I say, hey, Shaq, I need this analysis by Friday. Can you get it to me by Friday at two? Shaq, you say, yes, you got it Friday at two. I don't ever have to ask you about it again. It's either going to be on my desk Friday at two or in advance of Friday at two, you're going to come to me and say, hey, I can't keep that commitment. Here's why. Let's talk about what I can keep and we move along. And this has been an evolution that we've had as an organization over the last few years you would be amazed at how much more productive you can be when you don't have to check in on people. When it's one conversation, one commitment, the integrity is there and it's understood that you're gonna fulfill it. So radical integrity is a, is a huge, powerful force um, in our organization, I think a leadership tool that, that we rely on. The last one, and this may sound kind of funny, um, but the last one 
I would say is actually love and not, this is where English gets to sort of stumble a little bit because if you go to the Greek and there's a lot of really smart folks on your podcast that probably know this better than I do, but if you go to the Greek, there's like six or eight words for love in Greek. There's eros, which is that romantic love. There's phila, which is that brotherly love. But the love that I'm talking about is what the Greeks would have called agape love, which is a selfless love. Um, and the problem in English is we got one word for all those things. So like I love my wife. Well, that means one kind of love. I love chocolate chip cookies. Well, that's a whole different kind of love. Or I love watching sports on the weekend. You know, it's all the same word in English, but radically different things, right? And so this idea of agape is not the love that we typically think of in like love songs and movies and sort of popular culture, which is that nice, warm feeling that happens to you. This idea of agape is what um, the sort of philosopher and theologian, uh, Thomas Aquinas, he called it to will the good of another. It's a, actually, it's a conscious act to forcefully advocate for the best for the other. It's not something that happens to you. It's actually something you choose to do. Um, and this idea of fierce advocacy, willing the good for the other, um, a concept sometimes that you'll hear is, I'm not so much worried about what I want from you as it is what I want for you, is another incredible, powerful leadership tool that we use and that I try to use in my own life. Um, and one that uh, I think is probably doesn't get enough airtime, frankly, in, in schools, because it starts to feel a little weird when you start to talk about love and business school and big, you know, ventures and all that kind of stuff. But I really do think this idea of of agape, this willfully acting for the best for the others. And this applies to your employees, your tenants, your clients, your customers, your communities, where you do business um, can be one of the most powerful leadership tools that any leader has. That's just so true. We, uh, we love hearing what you're saying about agape. And at the same time, you know, you have to have an affiliate of, of working together on the front lines, right? Especially if you're in the trenches trying to find new investments or uh, plots of land that you can, you know, develop to make the area better. And help the community. But um, how do you see real estate evolving in the near future? There's a lot of prop tech firms starting up at Harvard and in other areas. And our best assumption is that there's gonna be more intuitive technology, uh, transformation of archaic ideas of residential and commercial properties, and maybe just better educated use, better programs that we can study here at Harvard or at other schools that will help us growing up. So there's, there's a lot to unpack in that one, Alex. I'll try to I'll try to grab it all. So I think there's it's really really hard to think about long term trends in this moment right now and sort of where we stand uh, as far as the the evolution of our life and the ongoing sort of pandemic environment that we find ourselves in. The reason for that is sort of the classic sort of cognitive bias that you hear, sort of recency bias, or what if you know the Daniel Kahneman is thinking fast, thinking slow, in some of his books. You know, he calls it what you see is all there is, which is basically you're completely focused on your most recent experience. And that begins to inform how you think the rest of your life is going to be or everything that happens afterwards. And we're, we've been stuck in COVID land for a while now. You know, we're coming up on a year and a half. And at times it feels like what we see is all there is. But I would suggest if you look back at previous times of crisis, whether it was a global financial crisis or even in Manhattan and Washington, D.C., the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, there were a lot of things that we would say at that time, like nobody will ever blank again. And in that moment, and so it would be things like, nobody is ever going to want to be in downtown Manhattan again, or travel on a plane for business, or rent space in a tall building again. And in that moment, when all we could see is all we thought there was, it felt very true. But as time evolved and the years passed by, 
some of those things that never were going to happen again, obviously began to happen again. And we reverted to, to more typical ways of behavior that have been established over a much longer time frame. So I'm really hesitant to, to talk about long-term trends, but I will talk about those in a second. But the short-term stuff, I think you're right on. There's a lot of tech. Real estate has been a very slow adopter of technology historically. Um, the construction industry in particular, I think. Um, I think if you look back, the last big technological jump the construction industry had was the invention of the crane, which was probably about 2,000, 3,000 years ago. So there's a little bit of room to move there. Um, but there's the obvious stuff that I think will stick. Touchless experiences coming into a building, whether it's an office building or a residential building. Um, unsexy stuff like MEP changes of air exchanges and making sure the air is as clean as it can be, making sure cleaning protocols are up to a new standard in the realm of the appreciation everybody has for how issues like coronavirus and other, you know, viruses might spread. I think in design, in the residential world, what we've seen in our own portfolio is products that have what we sometimes call flex spaces or rooms that aren't really bedrooms but can be used for a whole lot of things have become really popular. And we've seen this in high rises in New York and we've seen this in sort of stick build garden style apartments in the desert Southwest. This flexible room that can be a music room if you're a musician, it can certainly be a work from home space if you're a work from home space. It can be a little guest room when your guest arrives, but you don't need a guest room, you know, 365 days a year. But this idea of an additional piece of flex space in your own apartment that can serve a lot of different purposes, but you're not necessarily buying a bathroom with it. So it reduces the cost, it reduces the price point of the apartment and becomes a whole new level of functionality, um, I think is there. When it comes to office, I'm very, we talk about cognitive bias, right? We have a very big office portfolio in Manhattan. And so if I'm listening to this, I'm going to take with a fist-sized grain of salt anything the guy who owns a bunch of office says about the future of office, because I'm very aware of what I would like to have happen and what I would like to be true for my business today viable. So with that said, I like to listen to what other people are saying. And there's two things that, that strike me about that on things that I listened to recently or heard or read recently. One was, there's a guy named Will Page, who's like the chief economist at Spotify, right? He has no skin in the real estate game at all. He was on a, a real estate guy's podcast, a guy named uh, Spencer Levy, who works at one of the big brokerage firms. And he was talking about his experience, the transition and transformation of the recording in the music industry and parallels of that with the real estate industry. And one of the things he talked about that really rung a bell with me was in the office environment, you're not building sort of four walls and a roof you're building a place where culture can grow. And that to me is really, was, was pretty insightful because if you think about your experiences, we talked a little bit about the experiences um, of Harvard in person, the way it was in 2019 versus Harvard and university experience under COVID protocols, dramatically different, culturally dramatically different. And what the office provides for organizations is a place where their culture can thrive, people can be connected and the other thing that I read recently that sort of reinforced this to me is I'm in the middle of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new book. Um, it's the one about the bomber mafia in World War II. And I'm not even, I'm like maybe a third of the way through it, but he just hit at the very beginning. He talks about revolutions and whether they're revolutions in art or revolutions in political thought, or in the case of his book, revolutions in military strategy and thinking. And I even wrote this down because it was this, it sort of struck me as it's basically said revolutions. And I would say you could substitute revolutions for innovation, creativity, any dynamic environment of creative people trying to do something new and interesting are invariably group activities birthed in conversation, argument, validation, and proximity. And that's the proximity piece, is the being together piece. It's that human interaction piece that 
we're all sitting around and, you know, Alex starts talking about one thing and all of a sudden Virginia's eyes light up and we're like, hey, wait a minute, there's an idea, let's run with that. Or even the, we just get out of the meeting and Shia comes and grabs me on the way out and say, hey, one more thing about that. You just can't replicate that in the Zoom format. And I think as productive as we found it in certain aspects, the ability to build culture is vital when you have an in-person, having an in-person experience is vital to building an organizational culture and creating a place that can do revolutionary or creative or innovative type things. You know, it's really interesting that you pointed out that commercial real estate technology is pretty antiquated and slow to change. Um, I was working on a commercial real estate fintech venture that was in stealth mode, but, you know, like CoStar kind of holds a monopoly on commercial real estate data and owning a lot of subsidiaries. And also Shag was interning at Rex, which has about a $2 billion uh, valuation, not necessarily in commercial real estate, but um, all great patterns. And so speaking of those trends, what will happen to the office space left vacant by COVID work from home switches? Will the boundaries of property types blur as hotels and office spaces receive less demand and long-term housing spikes? I know you touch a little bit about this with the 9-11 example, but would love to hear more. Yeah, I think that you're, and again, I, I will caveat all of this with, I have a very big horse in this race of what happens to the future of office space. So keep that in mind. But I think the jury is very much out on what happens with office. I think nobody really knows because we haven't really returned back to the office. It was happening over the course of the summer We've kind of paused right now in a lot of places. And what I would suggest to you is a lot of what you read is not necessarily in alignment with a lot of what I'm seeing anecdotally and sort of granularly on the ground. And so for example, there's the common or the conventional wisdom is there's tons of vacant office space and tons of sublease space in the Manhattan market. And I know of two groups that are looking at the high end of the market, the high quality of the market, um, that have been unable to find space. So yeah, if you want class B space in a class B part of the city, there's lots of options. But if you want high quality office space with proximity to transit, proximity to the things that make New York great, um, that, that is not nearly as vacant as, as the top line numbers might imply. And I think you're starting to see, I think an exasperation at the senior leadership level on a lot of fronts about get, wanting to get people back in because they feel like we've been able to stay stable during this experience but we can't grow. And I'd say that's that's a fairly common perception, not across all firms. There are some firms who can absolutely focus or can absolutely thrive under a remote, sort of 100% remote posture. I think they're the exception, not the rule, frankly. A lot of it has to do with that culture question and that culture issue. But you've got to get people in and whether it's, you've got a law firm and you got first and second year associates, they're coming in, the partners aren't coming in and the first and second year associates have a question on how do I handle this? They have nobody to talk to. And they can't learn and they can't grow and they can't get a mentor and they can't figure out how to go to the next stage. That only happens when they're together in the office space. We've seen some of the law firms even growing uh, in this last cycle. So there's even a scenario where even if people, I do think there's gonna be more flexibility. I'll be clear on that. I don't think we're going back to everybody's in five days a week sort of pre-COVID land. I think clearly there's gonna be more flexibility, but this idea that it's a binary all or nothing, I think is kind of a false choice under a world where there's more flexibility and you're in the office three or four days a week, we still need a place to go. You still got to manage all that. And in a post-COVID world with some of the new design ideas, we'd really squeeze down per square foot per employee to a pretty tight number. Those numbers are going to start to expand again to provide a little more space, a little more light and air between people as they work through the day. 
So even if not everybody's coming back five days a week, they still need desks. And oh, by the way, you probably need more square footage per person to satisfy the, the sort of health requirements that people are going to want or the psychological health requirements that people are going to want. There is a scenario where we actually need more office space, not less post-COVID. But again, I don't know, I don't know any more than anybody else because we're just too early on. You can't draw these long-term trends based on a short-term, we talked about this before, the nobody will ever phenomenon. We're still in the middle of a short-term crisis. You know, the pandemic's gonna end, right? Clearly, we know it will end. Every pandemic in the history of the world has ended. This one will too. It's just our first time as a society to go through it, but there've been others in history. This will end. And until we get to the end of it, we're not 100% sure what's gonna happen. Um, lots of theories, lots of practice, but they're just theories and everybody's got their own sort of dog in the fight, if you will, myself included. I don't know if you could have said that much better. Just to transition a little bit here, while we're talking about different types of real estate and how they're gonna shift with the pandemic, that as you just pointed out, we don't really know what's gonna happen, um, especially with different variants coming out every day, it seems like. Uh, but how do you think COVID is going to affect sort of the, I'm not sure how to phrase this, but before the pandemic, there was this sense of uh, impending doom for shopping malls and the transition of retail out of brick and mortar and online. How do you think COVID will affect that shift? So one of the things that's occurred to me, and I'm not original in this thought, in this thought by any stretch, is COVID has been a little bit of a fast forward button on a whole lot of things. And one of it was the evolution of retail. We were, as a country, if you were to compare the United States to like any other sort of Western industrialized country, going into 2019, 2020, we were dramatically over retail. There was a lot of marginal retail that probably didn't need to exist. That would have gone through a sort of normal life cycle of struggling, ultimately failing, but it would have taken three, five, seven, maybe even 10 years. What COVID has done is, is had a lot of that marginal retail that was probably going to fail anyway, and it just accelerated it up into you know, an 18-month period. I would also caution against, again, this is the short-term trend versus the long-term trend, right? If you go and look over the last year and a half, there is a long-term sort of steady eddy growth of retail sales online, huge spike in the last 18 months, which makes perfect sense because you couldn't really go anywhere and buy anything. However, even with the Delta variant, um, you have now seen retail foot traffic pick up and you've seen that e-commerce sales number start to revert back to trend. In fact, now, and this makes perfect sense when retail went to basically zero, brick and mortar retail went to zero, the percentage of total sales online is actually dropping right now because it went so high during this short period of time and it's coming back down to a more normalized trend. I would also suggest retail isn't just buying stuff, right? This is one of the things that's happening in retail is an evolution of what the retail is becoming. And it's, you know, it's restaurants, it's experiential stuff, it's fitness, it's services, it's things you can't necessarily do online. Like, I don't know, it's, you know, I know some people have maybe been able to do it, but like you can't necessarily go get a haircut online, right? Or, you know, do some of these things, you know, it's, you can work out with your trainer online and do sort of video things, but it's certainly not as fun or satisfying as going to the gym. And so I would suggest that brick and mortar is not really going anywhere by and large. The marginal stuff that was going to fail anyway is going to fail now. And we're going to figure out what to do with that. But it's just continuing to evolve. Um, point being, just as an example, my office is on 6th Avenue. And across the street from my office down the block, a record store opened up selling vinyl records. Right. That's sort of an example of, you know, well, that's a different kind of retail. You'd say old technology, but there's a whole 
new attitude towards vinyl and audio. And yeah, I could go stream. I could for for ten bucks a month, right? I can get every every song in that store if I wanted to. But I can't get the experience of going in. I can't go buy the actual piece of vinyl. I can't see it. I can't go discover something I might not find in the curated list that the bots at Spotify might send to me. And so there's an experiential thing there that just doesn't doesn't happen online. So I would not um, assume retail is dead, dead. It's just going to evolve and there's going to be a different level of it from the experiential side, the luxury side. And what sometimes you'll hear is the the um, the food and fun side, which is again another way to put the experiential side, restaurants and experiential stuff. And that's the bottom line. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to find us online at harvardventures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, please email us at hello at harvardventures.org and follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.